I think one of the challenges our sport faces is you look at it and maybe you compare it to, you know, shooting tin cans in your backyard. And I don't think people really truly understand the level we're doing it at and how actually difficult that is. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hello. It is summer-ish here, so I have been getting out and doing things. Like? Actually seeing people. <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> it's a little odd. It's like, oh my goodness, that's what the other half of your face looks like. I forgot. <laughs> I hear but you. now I have to remember that when I make a face, people can see it. Mm, yes. So, you know, you got to watch those expressions all of a sudden again. Right. You got to wear pants and yeah, lots of things. Got to Shoes. Get shoes. Oh, my goodness. Hate shoes. I'll get used to them again. But it's going to be sandal weather. How are, how are sandals? They're still shoes. Okay. All right. I need sports with no shoes, but we are not talking sports with no shoes today. That is true. We have, we're talking sports that have very specialized shoes, actually. Uh, our guest today is shooter Ginny Thrasher. Ginny won the first gold medal awarded at the Rio 2016 Olympics in the 10-meter air rifle event. She also competes in three-position 50-meter small bore rifle. She joined us to tell us how those two events work. Take a listen. First off, Ginny, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having oh, me. Yeah. You're welcome. So you shoot air <laughs> rifle. We were so excited to read Abhinav Bindra's book. And it just the sport itself sounds so fascinating. So let's let's talk about it and what what the elements are because it's one of those short set sports that a lot of Olympics fans don't necessarily tune into because they don't understand it. So you're you're shooting a, a an air rifle. What what is an air rifle? Yeah, our sport is so niche, and I think people really don't understand it, but actually it's incredible because it's such a mental sport. So there's a lot of physical components, and obviously one of the physical components is the actual equipment you're using, So, like your air rifle. So an air rifle shoots a pellet, a .177 caliber pellet, and it uses compressed air to propel that pellet forward. 10 meters into a target that is very small. So to give you a reference, the bullseye, the center of the target, is the same size as the period at the end of a sentence in Times New Roman font size 12. So that's how small what we're aiming for is. And that's why we have all this equipment and, you know, we look kind of silly when we're doing it, honestly, but it actually turns it into such a mental sport because it's not who can hit that incredibly small target once. It's who can do it 60 times in a row when you're halfway across the world competing in the biggest match of your life, right? My first immediate thought is whose idea was this? 
Like that's, <laughs> you know, that's so, you can't see the target. You can't, like, I'm not even sure what I'm asking. It's like, how did this even come to be? And I'm not sure how much you know on that. Oh, I actually know a little bit for sure. So shooting is actually one of the original sports in the modern Olympic Games. So if you think about, you know, in the early 1900s when the Olympics kind of started up, not like the ancient Olympic wrestling type stuff, but in the the modern Games, shooting was a huge sport. And as we've kind of come into the 21st century where we are now, there's been a lot of goals to make shooting more accessible. So as, you know, policies change around the world, and of course, every different country has different laws and cultures. So what happened was they used to shoot, you know, big bore guns, 300 meters, you know, and all of these things that now with the state of the world today, a lot of people in different countries can't get. So air rifle actually entered the sport in, I think, 1984. I'm pretty confident on that fact, actually. So 1984, Air Rifle entered the sport, and that's kind of when it became more of a precision shooting equipment kind of matters uh, and a smaller target. So obviously when they were shooting big bore guns in the early 1900s and the, um, the technology just wasn't as advanced, they had a lot bigger targets, right? And so now as technology improves and as athletes across the world in every sport improve their skills and their training techniques, they've kind of had to go to uh, very high standards. And so one way to do that is to reduce the size of the target. And people are like, wow, that's easy. All you do is line your scope up on the center. That Well, we don't have any magnification. We don't have any support. We don't have any magnification. So I think People think it's a very easy sport because they can't see us moving, right? Even if you've never ran track and you see Usain Bolt sprinting, you understand the difficulty of what he's doing. I think one of the challenges our sport faces is you look at it and maybe you compare it to, you know, shooting tin cans in your backyard. And I don't think people really truly understand the level we're doing it at and how actually difficult that is. So when you can't see the target, how do you aim? Uh, That's a good question. So the target looks like a black circle, right? So it's downrange as a black circle. And our sights are called peep or aperture sights, which means I'm looking through the rear sight, which is essentially just a big circle you look through and then you look into the front site, which has an aperture, AKA a smaller circle. So you're just lining up circles within circles. So you line up the bullseye, the black circle 10 meters away into your front aperture and you line up that front aperture into your rear sight. And once all three circles are aligned, you know, you are aiming center and you can pull the trigger before competition, do you have to like sight your rifle to make sure your sights are all lined up correctly? Yes, actually. So similar to any other gun, you have to sight it in to make sure because if someone else were to pick up my gun, you know, 
they have different eyes and they have different ways they would mount onto the cheek piece. And even for me, day to day, as your hydration changes, you know, things, things just change a little bit. So every Olympic competition actually has a sighting in period. And typically they're about 15 minutes. And the point is to warm up your body and your mind and to adjust your equipment and your, your sights as needed. So during these 15 minutes, you can take as many shots as you want. And while you're taking those shots, the, you know, the score doesn't count. You're taking those shots so that when the match starts, you can shoot at the center, right? So when the match starts, you have a block time. So in air rifle, you have an hour and 15 minutes for 60 shots. So you can spend that however you want. You can get them all done in 15 minutes and then go sit down. You can go very slowly. You can take breaks and come offline and talk to your coach. So it's actually kind of a, a lot of strategy there. And then the other event I shoot is actually small bore rifle, which is a 22 caliber rifle. Shoots a bullet and it shoots at 50 meters. And that one's actually outdoors, which provides a great challenge sometimes with the wind and the mirage, different lighting conditions. So when you're uh, shooting there, it really does become more of a strategy thing uh, with the wind too. That makes sense. Okay. How does hydration affect your sights or your sighting ability? Yeah. So hydration affects your eyesight and how you see things. So that affects your sighting and also hydration affects your muscles and how, um, you know, long they get basically so as you stretch and warm up you know it affects how they lengthen and that affects our uh, kind of crazy looking positions we have so I think so many things actually affect uh, your shooting from the humidity in the air to your hydration to you know how full the moon is that day and part of shooting is being able to adapt right and it's not about who's the best shooter the day before it's about who's the best shooter that day who can mentally and physically adapt to those changing conditions holy cow that is that (laughs) it's that's one thing that's really interesting about shooting i'm a big biathlon fan so it every it's that's what makes it exciting is because on any given day a whole handful of people could win you know, when we go and we exactly. watch 100 meters, likely Usain Bolt's going to win this. You know, that's what the way it's been yeah. since like 2008. But for these kind of sports, the tension and, and having that tension build out over 75 minutes is, is really kind of fascinating. It is. It so is because a lot of the mainstream sports people watch in the Olympics, like track and field, gymnastics, swimming, you know, there's a huge level of consistency. You know, you have to train to become the best in the world. But once you hit that, you know, there is a physical dominance, where as in my sport, that consistency just doesn't exist because so much of it is mental. And that is one of the things that makes it great, very frustrating sometimes, but also great. So when I was in Rio, Anyone could have won. I think, you know, maybe there were 50 athletes competing in my event. And I think it was realistic to say that 10 of those girls had a fair shot at winning. And if you had run the match 10 times in a row, you could very well have 10 different winners. So, and and I don't say that to like, you know, diminish myself because it's not true. Like, 
on that day in Rio, when it counted, I won. I did that. I pulled the trigger. That being said, there is a little bit of timing and other things involved that I think makes it so rewarding when you do actually win. Interesting. Okay, so let's let's talk about the gear for a little bit. How much does your gun weigh? So the guns actually weigh about 12 pounds. So there is a weight limit. So an air rifle is 5.5 kilograms for women and 6.5 kilograms for men. And so basically you can have anything lighter than that, but you want to have as heavy as you can handle because that anchors you down into the ground and makes it easier to not sway as much and hold more still on the target. So you want to have as much as you can handle, but if you have too much and, and I'm five foot one, I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm a petite person. Uh, I don't really weigh a lot. So it takes a lot of practice and training. People are often surprised that we do a lot of weight training and a, a lot of time outside of the range working on our sport. So I do that to give me the, the stamina and endurance because 12 pounds doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're holding 12 pounds up for an hour and 15 minutes straight, it can actually be very strenuous. And not be able to shake at all. You can't have even the slightest switch. Exactly. Uh, Okay. So I I also like the money stuff. How much does a rifle cost? (laughs) They cost (laughs) a pretty penny. (laughs) Yeah, we talked with Kim Rohde and Kim Rohde's like, yeah, our sport's really expensive. It is very expensive. And that I actually think is one of the unfortunate things about the sport that I wish I could change because there's such a high barrier to entry that I think it makes it hard for people to understand the sport because they've never tried it. Whereas, you know, with a lot of sports like volleyball, right? What do you need? A pair of shoes and a volleyball. Uh, Whereas in our sport, you need a rifle that can cost, you know, three to five thousand dollars uh the price of ammo our custom-made suits which are about two to three thousand dollars uh you know and that's in addition to the coaching the range time all the travel to different venues and stuff so i'm very fortunate right now because i'm well supported both by my national governing body usa shooting and a few sponsors which which really helped me but um it's difficult, especially when you're in high school. And the the best thing our sport has actually is the NCAA system. So the fact that a lot of athletes can go make that investment in high school and then kind of, I don't want to say like get that money back in college, but a lot of them do get athletic scholarships to shoot in college. And I think that makes it a little more palatable for sure. Do you have multiple guns at once? I do. So I have my air rifle and then my 22 caliber. So the ones I compete with. And then actually at this level, I have backup rifles just in case anything were to ever happen. So for instance, when I go to the Olympics, I will take a backup gun because guns break. And are you going to let four years of hard work go because you were unprepared and a gun broke the day before the match? Nope, you're going to have a backup gun and you're going to pull it out and shoot it. So I, uh, I haven't always been in that position to, to be able to have access to those resources, but I do now and I'm very thankful. How, how do you travel with it? 
What's so, what's that process like? Because that's got to be fun. It's tough, honestly. So I have a gun case. Uh, it's like a black hard-sided gun case. And if you stand it up, it's almost as tall as I am. <laughs> and <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so I have the gun case and that's where I put the guns. And it's, it's very difficult to pack the guns so they're safe and secure. And then I have the gear bag, which is basically a gigantic suitcase. And that is, they can weigh pretty heavy. I would say 50 to 70 pounds, depending how much ammo I'm carrying at the time. And then I also have a suitcase in addition that has all of my clothes and toiletries and things like that. So I have these three bags and I have to strap them together and I'm going into the airport, you know, and I'm just like completely weighed down by these bags. And then you get to the check-in counter and the first thing you have to do is declare that you have a firearm so that uh, they can safely transport it. And sometimes that goes really easily. And sometimes that does not just based on, you know, whether they know the rules for carrying a firearm. If you're going to a foreign country, sometimes you need special visas. So it can definitely be complex. We get to the airport very early. And I would say at my home airport now, you know, they know me because I, I travel quite frequently. So I uh, I walk into the airport it's like, oh, hey, Jenny, where are you going today? You know, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, <laughs> kind of difficult to travel with, to be honest. So you don't just do the weightlifting for the stamina during the match you also do it so you can transport everything <laughs> through the airport right yeah i definitely get my workout on travel days <laughs> so a- ammunition you mentioned for air rifle it's a pellet and then the 50 meter rifle it's a 22 caliber so how much do you go through in a competition in a competition for air rifle we'll shoot 60 shots in the match plus ciders. And normally you're taking, you know, 12 to 20 ciders. In small board, we actually shoot a little bit more. So we shoot 120 shots, but it's actually over the course of three positions. So I know it's such a complicated sport, but um, I promise it's worth learning about. So in small board, we shoot 40 shots in the kneeling position and then 40 shots in the prone, aka the lying down position, and then 40 shots in the standing position. So it's 120 record shots, but you have ciders three different times. So probably 15 ciders each of those times. So add on another 45 shots. Now in the small bore rifle, are your targets at, is this target at the same position and you just move your body into different positions? Yes, it is. Okay. Do you know, what is the history of that event? And Because um, it's kind of curious, like, I kind of get just the, this is the way it is. We shoot prone, we shoot kneeling, we shoot standing, but why is that important in, in shooting or how did that evolve? Yeah. So actually prone rifle shooting was kind of the beginning of it back in the early 1900s. They would shoot prone matches and that's a great sport because it's very accessible to shooters of a lot of different ages. And actually, until 2016, it was event in the Olympics, and then they took it out. So what was happening was prone, basically, I don't want to say it became too easy, but, you know, there has to be an evolution of the sport to keep it challenging, to keep it interesting. So they made it into a three-position sport uh, with prone standing and kneeling 
so that uh, there were more variables almost to keep it challenging for sure. And I think it really is because a lot of people have a position that's kind of their keystone position. It's the position they're really, really good at. And then maybe in another position, they struggle more. And I think that it almost makes it more fair and it always gives you something to work on because you always kind of have a position that you're working on, even if that position changes. So I used to struggle a lot with kneeling actually, and I've been working a lot on it over the last few years. And now kneeling is really a strength of mine, but now I'm struggling with prone, you know? So I think um, there's a constant journey that has to be embraced. And I think when I was in high school and I had started shooting this, it was very much like, okay, one day I'll reach perfection and all my positions will be amazing and I'll never have to work on anything again. And I think as I've uh, matured as an athlete and I kind of can see the big picture now, I realize that that's just not true. Uh, but that struggle that you go through is a part of what makes it an amazing sport. And that's what makes it gratifying and fulfilling over your you know, 10, 15 year career. Okay, okay, so I know we're going to bounce back and forth, but for for the three position, kneeling, do you choose your knee? Does it base, does it, is it based on which arm you shoot with? How does that work? Yeah, so the main factor there is actually eye dominance. So you can be a left-handed person, but you can be right eye dominant. So that's called cross dominance. So basically, whichever eye is better because your vision is so important to your shooting, right? So whatever eye is better is kind of which way you shoot. So I'm right-handed, but more importantly, I'm right-eye dominant. So all of my positions are right-eye dominant. So that means for kneeling, kind of my right knee is on the ground and my left knee is propped up and that's the one my other arm with the gun sits on. So um, there are lefties in the sport who are left eye dominant. I would say it's harder typically for them to reach the highest rank just because A, it's not as common, but B, you know, all your equipment is shifted. So sometimes it's hard to get that right equipment when you're starting out. And also I think it's hard for a lot of coaches at the lower level to shift their thinking a lot of the shooting positions are different angles and different things and I sometimes coaches get to the point of they they just know what looks right and then when you put that into a left-handed position and your arms are reversed and your legs are reversed the coaches don't always know what looks right so I think it is a little harder for lefties interesting so kneeling uh, you mentioned you've gotten better on kneeling does that have something to do with the little pillow you invented uh, yeah, so the kneeling role actually is, uh, honestly, it's an accomplishment I'm really proud of. So I was a senior in college, and I was struggling in the kneeling position because I would fall off of the kneeling roll. The kneeling roll is this cylindrical bag, almost like a bean bag, and it's filled with, you can fill it with anything, but like either like cork or rice or plastic pellets, anything beanbag material, whatever that kind of shifts and forms. So I would sit down on the kneeling roll and I'd be shooting and between like the weight of the gun and my position, I would be falling to one side every 20 shots or so. And I said, there has to be a better way. So I actually created a prototype using Ziploc bags. So 
So I took three Ziploc bags and I put the kneeling roll filling into these bags. And one was on the left side of the kneeling roll, one was on the right, one was in the center. And my theory was as my weight is on the kneeling roll, because there's compartments in there, they there's nowhere for that filling for those beans to go, right? There's nowhere for them to shift and I can't fall off the bag. So that worked really well. And I thought, you know, I can't be the only one having this problem. So I actually contacted uh, one of the shooting equipment manufacturers in Germany. And I said, hey, I want to, you know, I want to create that. What do you think? And he was like, let's do it. So he sent me a prototype and we went back and forth. So we partnered together on it. And I actually ended up getting it patented. Which is really cool because most people can't say, you know, they're a professional athlete and they hold a patent. So I do shoot with that now and it's actually available to the public. And it's cool because it's like, you know, red, white, and blue colors. And actually my autograph is like stitched on the side of it. So it's just kind of cool to be walking along the firing line and seeing other athletes use something that I specifically created. Oh, please tell me it's called the Thrasher Stasher. Ah! <laughs> wow, I should have called you when I was <laughs> Can we talk close? Yeah, top down, because <laughs> you've got a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of gear. We start with a visor, right? Does everybody uh-huh. wear a visor? What What is the purpose of it? I would say the majority of people wear a visor. It's not required. The reason you wear a visor is if there's really bright light shining overhead. So if you're in a stadium and there's really bright light, um, it can affect how you see the target. So if you wear a visor, then the bright lights don't bother you. (laughs) So kind of simple, that one. And then I guess if you're outside in the sunshine also. Exactly. Exactly. Then... Some people have little blinders over different parts of their gun. What's up with that? Yeah, so those are called blinders, and they're basically the ones on the side of your face. They kind of function the same as horse blinders. They keep you focused. You know, you're not distracted by looking at the audience. Those actually were made illegal after the 2016 Olympics um, in an effort to make the sport more spectator-friendly so that cameras can actually see our face and kind of see the reactions and everything. So create a little less of like a closed off experience. So those are now illegal, but we also have blinders that are over our left eye. So if you're a right eye dominant shooter, they're over your non-dominant eye. The point of those is so that you don't have to close your eye. So if you keep both eyes open while you're shooting, then, and you don't have a blinder, then you can almost like see double sometimes. But if you close that left eye, then you can see clearly. But over the course of an hour, 15 minutes, your um, muscles on the left side of your face get tired. And when they get tired, then other muscles compensate. And basically, your the movement on the target opens up. So the blinder over that eye that you're not looking through just serves so that you can relax the muscles on your face and keep both eyes open. Earplugs. Earplugs are for two reasons. Um, One is the noise of the gun. So if you shoot 200 shots every day, over time, you're going to lose your hearing. (laughs) Uh, Because when you're right on the gun, it's a lot louder than when you're in the stands. 
actually three reasons. The second reason is to block out distractions. If there's people screaming or cheering or calling your name or there's loud music, it kind of helps you stay focused. And the third reason that a lot of people actually don't know about is balance. So when you wear earplugs, it actually pressurizes the air in your inner ear. So the liquid in your inner ear that kind of tells your brain whether you're balanced or whether you're falling can't move around as much. So it can actually help with sway and balance. I did not know that. I know as you're talking about all this, I'm getting dizzy. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because I'm all of a sudden kind of focusing on how my head feels and I'm realizing this sport is impossible. You know, it is so complex and it is so, it's amazing because of that, but people really don't understand. And I'm kind of on a mission right now with my social media and with my Instagram. And I'm actually on TikTok trying to uh, relate to to the younger generation. (laughs) I say that as a very old and wise (laughs) (laughs) 24-year-old. But I'm on a mission, truly, to advance the sport. And I think the reason the sport isn't popular isn't because it's not a great sport. Because it is a great and very challenging sport. It's because people don't understand it. And whether, you know, whether or not people kind of see my social media and they're like, oh, my goodness, I want to try that. You know, that's okay if they want to try it or not. But if they can say, wow, I respect that as a because nobody comments on Simone Biles' Instagram or TikTok posts and say, hey, gymnastics isn't a real sport. You're not a real athlete. Nobody says that, but they say that to me all the time. And I just, you know, it's it's sad because it's coming from a place of ignorance. And that's why I love, love, love talking about my sport and sharing my sport because anyone who's ever tried it goes, how cool is this? (laughs) It is, it is. I have not tried air rifle, but but target shooting is very fun. I will say that. Um, yeah. Uh, gosh. Okay. So uh, the the coat and the pants. Yes. So those have a few different reasons. The biggest one is stability. So you know, people ask the question, "Well, couldn't you just shoot without them?" And it's like, yes, we could shoot without them, but things would have to change, right? the target would have to be bigger. Um, We would have to take less shots. The guns would have to weigh less. So basically, if you took away the jacket and pants, there would be a whole domino effect of changes to the sport. You know, they also help with injury prevention. So we're holding that 12-pound gun, and the positions that make us the most stable are not natural positions, right? We're all twisted, and our spine's crooked, and then you put the weight on top of it, And it can very easily cause injury. So a lot of what that gun does is alleviate some of the pressures that cause injury, which can be very helpful for sure. Other reasons for it, it helps us to stay in position longer. So there's a few things like on the elbow pads, there's like grippy material and stuff. So that just, you know, it can help us from slipping and it protects our elbow, like our hard points of contact from, you know, getting all torn up. So I know they look funny. They look like straight jackets, honestly. But once you're, you know, in the sport, it kind of becomes very evident 
why they're needed to compete at a high level. And I think it also creates kind of consistency and equality in a lot of ways. I know people kind of see them and they're like, well, yeah, it creates equality. It makes your sport too easy. And it's like, no, no, it creates a space where anyone can shoot the sport and it becomes a lot less about natural talent and a lot more about how much work you've put into it. You know, what's your mental game right now? So it kind of makes it into a more cerebral sport because if you didn't have the jacket and pants, you would be so just trying to hit the target and nothing else would matter that it would almost become easier in a lot of ways where this way it kind of helps perfection be in sight, which makes it a lot more difficult mentally. Do you also have a glove? We do. So on our left hand, we have a glove and that is purely for comfort. (laughs) The jackets have pockets. Yeah, there's one pocket in the jacket, and it's purely utilitarian, right? So a lot of the guns have different screws that need to be adjusted and different parts. So the jacket just holds your wrenches that change the screws. You know, and you can put whatever you want in there. So some people have a handkerchief in there, you know. So, I, yeah, I just have my wrenches in there. Snacks. I I would think extra weight. (laughs) To be quite honest, <laughs> weigh you down yeah. to the ground. <laughs> Anything particular about shoes and socks? Yeah. So the shoes in particular are very interesting. So we have boots that are specially designed shooting boots, and they come up very high onto your ankle to add some stiffness there. And then the soles are very, very flat. So if you think about a shoe, like, do you remember those uh, shoes that were rounded and the whole premise of them was like, you rock on them and you burn more calories, Oh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So our shoes are the complete opposite, right? We want as flat as possible so we don't rock. So we have a lot less sway, better balance. Um, they also have these kind of squared off toes, um, like a toe box. And that is for the kneeling position. So that when you're kneeling on your foot, you're not falling to one side or the other. So those are kind of very um, specialized. And I just want to point out that every single piece of our equipment has very strict rules. You know, the thickness of the jacket, the thickness of the jacket, how much flex is in the boots, you know, the height of our gun, the weight of our gun, you know, a bunch of things like that are all checked before every competition because it's not about who has the shiniest equipment that's better. You know, it's, your equipment still has to be within the rules of play. So even like our undergarments. So, you know, you wear spandex underneath your suit, but that has thickness and requirements. And there's also requirements for taping. Like we can't go tape parts of our back and our arms to provide more stability. There's absolutely no taping allowed. Oh, man. So if, like, you wrenched your back or something, or, like, this was in Abanov's book. He had a lot of back issues. So he, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't like, use that kinesiology tape? Is that what that's called? Like Not K-tape? during competition. Not, oh, my Not gosh. during competition. Mm-hmm. Wow. When you're shooting, you shoot, and then you set the rifle on a stand next to you. Why mm-hmm. is 
the stand there, why don't you just hold the gun? Well, the gun's heavy, so you wouldn't necessarily want to hold it. But yeah, like, so why not put it on a block? Reasons. The block, yeah. There's two reasons. Um, one is to rest between shots. So yeah, if you were to hold that all hour and fifteen minutes, uh, you'd get very tired. So you want to rest it. So when you put it on the stand, you can keep the the back part of the gun in your shoulder. So that eliminates a variable. If you were to completely set the gun down every time when you pick it up, there would be a lot more variables of like how it fits you. Um, the other reason is to reload. So when you go after you shoot, you have to put another bullet or another pellet in the gun, right? And it's difficult depending who you are. But for me, I have very short arms and also depending on the design of your gun to reach that chamber. So I couldn't just keep it up in my arms in position and reload. I physically have to put it on the stand so that I can reach the chamber and be able to shoot the next shot. When you approach a match, do you have the same strategy every time? Like you have 75 minutes to to get your shots done. Do you decide this is my game plan for this match or do you just have one game plan that you go over go from match to match and like i'm gonna take i'm gonna wait a few minutes i'm gonna take my shot slowly i'm gonna take them all at the same time or how do you approach the strategic element of that yeah i think there are a few things that stay consistent in my plan match to match but Really, it comes down to adaptability in the moment and reacting to changing conditions. So I would say typically for me, I start a little slower in my first 10 shots just because, you know, maybe I'm nervous. Maybe that's what I need is to be a little slower and more deliberate until I can really find my rhythm. I know for me, if I rush those first 10 shots, they're not going to go well. I need to shoot slowly and I can shoot very well slowly in those first 10 shots. And then, you know, after that, trying to kind of pick up the pace a little bit and find that rhythm and kind of maybe get into a little more of the flow state. As far as taking breaks and coming off the line, I've tried in the past to have kind of planned breaks, you know, at 20 shots, I'm going to take a break and go talk to my coach. And uh, for me, that doesn't really work. So I take breaks when I need breaks. And I have 10 years of experience in shooting. So I kind of know now, like when I need to come offline, when I need to just sit there for 30 seconds and take a moment to myself. And some matches, I shoot 60 shots, I don't take a single break, I just keep going. Some matches, I take, you know, five breaks in 60 shots. So it's really kind of what I need that day. What is the difference between this first round of shooting versus the final rounds? That's a great question. So in the first round, we all shoot 60 shots. Anyone in the match shoots 60 shots for the qualification. And then the top eight athletes from that round go into the final. So kind of similar to like in track and field, if you're doing a sprint, you know, you have your like, semi-final seat and then your final seat so we just have everybody shoot at once and then the top eight athletes go into the final when you start the final it starts back at zero so you can qualify in the qualification but you can't win in the qualification because everything starts at zero 
And then those top eight athletes, when they're in the finals round, it's really kind of fun because it's a knockout finals elimination match. So you shoot a few shots, and then they say eighth place, you know, whoever has the lowest score, sit down. And then you shoot a few more shots, and they say seventh place, sit down. And you keep going like that until, you know, you're the last man left standing and you won. That sounds like the worst game of musical chairs ever. <laughs> Do you, is it number of shots consistent? Do you know? Or is it just random? Uh, yeah, there's 24 shots. Yeah, it, it's kind of complicated because as you go further, so, you know, I think it's 12 shots before you kick out eighth place. And then every two shots, someone sits down. Wow. After that. So you can't be a slow starter. You can't work your way to better shooting. Yeah, it's difficult in a lot of ways because 24 shots really isn't that many. But it also is, right? So if you have a bad first few shots, you can't give up because if you give up, then you're definitely out of it. But if you also dig yourself too big of a hole, well, it gets kind of difficult to, to get out of it. But at the same time, crazy things happen so in the finals is kind of when you know you kind of have to just stay in the present moment and keep going and keep trying I don't know if you've ever seen like the speed skater who won because everybody else in the Olympic final oh yeah fell and yeah. crashed right yep. the short track sometimes, yeah Sometimes that can happen in shooting, you know, maybe not to that extreme, but, you know, you really have to just keep on trucking because you don't know and you can't control what happens. Then is that the same for the three position? Yeah, so the finals, a similar concept. It's a knockout elimination final. It looks a little different because all eight athletes shoot 15 shots in kneeling. Then they change over to prone, shoot 15 shots prone. Then they change over to standing. And then they shoot 10 shots standing. After 10 shots, then they knock out two people. And then one more shot, knock out another. One more shot, knock out another. So everybody gets to shoot a little bit longer, but it is that knockout elimination final. How do you improve as a shooter? Yeah, there's lots of different ways to improve as a shooter because it's such a complicated sport. So you have kind of physical ways, you know, lifting outside the range, um, your positions, which is kind of like where your feet are when you're in standing, how the gun fits you. Then there's technical ways to improve. So like that's how you approach the target, what your sight picture looks like when you pull the trigger, things like that. And then mental ways, you know, kind of having that mental toughness and mental strength to be a pressure player, which, as we know, that's not born. You're not born a great mentally tough athlete. You create that. So those are kind of like how I like to think of, of different ways to improve and how I like to break down my, my skills. So one of the best parts about shooting is the longevity. You know, it's, it's not like some sports where, you know, at 20 you're kicked out and you can't do it any longer your body breaks down or whatever this is a sport where you can do it for a really long time and actually a lot of athletes peak later in their careers so 
for a fun example of this, when I was in the Rio Olympics, I was one of the eight athletes to compete in the final, right? So I was actually the youngest at 19 years old to be in that eight-person final. The average age of those eight women, the average age of the eight top women in the world on that day was 31. Wow. Yeah, and I think that just really illustrates the fact that this sport has longevity and experience counts for something. And so I think a lot of the the people who are in high school and kind of ask me how to improve, it's kind of like, well, you need to shoot more. You need to gain more experience, right? More rounds down range, more competitions, every weekend a competition, you know. And as you get to the higher and higher levels, it becomes less about how many rounds did you put down range today and more of like, what was the quality? What are you working on? And I think that transition is often hard for, for people. But that's kind of when I got to college, the difference between high school Jenny and college Jenny was kind of just time in the range. When I was in high school, you know, I could maybe shoot three or four days a week. And when I got to, you know, for maybe two to three hours, and when I got to college, all of a sudden I could shoot five days a week for three to four hours a day and have all these other methods of training, weightlifting, you know, being on the team, things like that. And I now had some of the best coaching in the country. So I think all of those resources kind of compounded to see what was really a crazy freshman year, you know, from going the summer before my freshman year of college to being on my first international team to going to college to becoming the most successful freshman shooter in history by winning uh, both NCAA championship and the team championship to qualifying for the Olympics and then winning the Olympics, right? So kind of a crazy year, but the compound effect of all those resources and I think you know obviously my hard work you you can't get anywhere in a sport without hard work kind of led to that okay what's going on with qualifications for Tokyo because COVID has messed up a lot of things yes they have so this quad we have a two-part trial system so what that means is we're supposed to have a match And then a few months later, we have another match and you add up all the scores from the two matches and whoever is in first and second place will go to the Olympics, right? So that's the qualification system. So we had our first match and after the first match, I was sitting in first place. And then our second match was supposed to be the end of March, 2020. Well, that did not happen (laughs) naturally. (laughs) So our second match was delayed, you know, from March until May and then May until October and October until February. Anyway, now the second match is at the end of May. So currently we have not picked our Olympic team, but I am sitting in first place and I am training very diligently and have every hope and expectation to to make my second Olympic team and go represent my country well. So it has been good to... Um, You know, to be honest with you, the delay has been really good for me in a lot of ways. I think for me personally, I know I will be shooting through Tokyo and through Paris 
and maybe even till LA. So it's one of those things of I'm not shooting just for the Olympics. I'm shooting to try to become the best version of myself that I can be. And whether the Olympics happens this year or next year or whatever doesn't really matter. That doesn't stop me from achieving my goals. So I do feel a lot of compassion and empathy for the athletes who, you know, were on the verge of retirement or dealing with injury or are in a sport where there's a much shorter lifespan. But for me personally, it's given me a lot of time to, to reflect, to get back to basics, to work on my base positions and my techniques. So I am uh, feeling very confident, but mostly excited. I'm just excited to get back to competing normally and and to go kind of test my medal with with everyone else in the world excellent well we will be rooting for you jenny thank you so much i appreciate it thank you so much jenny follow jenny on social she is at jenny thrasher on instagram facebook tiktok and twitter and you can check out her website jennythrasher.com she is very active and has a ton of really great videos on instagram for sure and we talked a lot about traveling with equipment. She did a whole video on how she has to pack her rifle. Oh, nice. And it was a lot of fun because she, uh, some of the things she talked to us about, but there was additional steps oh. and bits that were, she does it with a great sense of humor. Okay. I will Which definitely. I think you need. Yes. Oh, man. I will definitely check that out. All right. We'd like to take a second to thank all of our Patreon patrons. Our show has uh, some enormous expenses, and uh, especially coming up, leading up to Beijing 2022, where we will have a presence on the ground in Beijing, and uh, our Patreon patrons help make that possible for us. If you'd like to uh, join the Patreon crowd, find us at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. We will be having a special episode for those at the bronze donor level and above. They get access to a special patron-only show, and we will be taping our next one coming up. It's going to be with a shooter, McKenna Gear, because she works at the USOPC Museum, and she told us all about that, and that's going to be Got special. a few tidbits about the museum that we are so excited about. And, and just thinking about it makes me want to cry. Oh, don't start again. Okay, I won't. Anyway, but find us at patreon.com slash flamealivepod if you would like to support the show as well. Welcome to Shookflistan. It is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are people who have been guests on our show. Allison, good news for Megan Duhamel. I know. Megan Duhamel and Dylan Moscovich will be skating together for Stars on Ice, uh, the tour of Canada, that will start in October, and tickets go on sale May 20th. Very exciting. I'm glad that she's got a partner and that they can get routines together so quickly. Well, they've been doing this a long time, both yes. of them. Dylan is a Canadian champion, so they, they know what they're doing. Yes. Uh, gymnast Chelsea Memel is entered in the U.S. Classic. This is her first meet in nine years. She will be part of the first senior session that is going to be this Saturday, the 22nd. And her uh, session kicks off at 1 p.m. Eastern and uh, will be on the Peacock app, which is NBC's app. The second senior session will be at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern on uh, NBCSN. I'm, I'm so excited to watch Chelsea compete again. I know. We've been watching her routines develop on both her YouTube channel and on Instagram. So mm -hmm. I 
she's been nailing them all week. Right. So I'm hoping this good week of practice will lead into a, a good competition. The nerves must be unbelievable, though. I know. And she was saying on uh, one of her recent YouTube videos how she is hoping she remembers how to compete, which I thought was really interesting. Like practice and practice and you develop routines and you're just working on building up skills and getting over hurdles and problem areas. But like what happens when you're in the competition arena, that's that's a totally different feeling. You know, I hope she does well. I hope she doesn't fall off anything. Oh, don't even say that. Okay, I'm going to not. I'm going to shut up now. Well, Chelsea, we hope you do well. We will be rooting for you. Uh, Siva Keshevan is on the selection panel for the Go Sports Foundation that will award scholarships to athletes in India. Which is very cool. Uh, at the Tier Pro Swim Series in Indianapolis last week, Mallory Comerford made the finals for the 100-meter freestyle, and she placed eighth in her final. She was also scheduled to do the 100-meter butterfly, but she did not start in that event. Uh, Montreal's Nomad Block now has a bouldering center at the Olympic Park Esplanade, and it has 30 linear meters of walls and climbing routes for all levels, and everyone will find a challenge on the climbing wall. I'm excited. You know, Montreal tries really hard. The The Parc Olympique staff tries really hard to make that park a good legacy and something fun for people to do. So it's nice to see that they have yet another feature there. And then finally, congratulations to Ness Murby, who became a father on April 16th and has a lovely little daughter. We love more Shukflistan babies. That sound means it's time for an Atlanta moment. It is the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. So every week we are looking back at some of the stories from these games. Allison, it is your week. What do you have for me? It is my week. So one of the things we've been talking a lot about with Tokyo is that the marathon is taking place all the way in Sapporo. And I came across the football, the football slash soccer tournament uh, for both men and women in Atlanta. And it was regional. Oh, right. we We think of regional Olympics as a new thing, you know, having it here, having it there. But the soccer tournament went as far as RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., which is over 640 miles, the Orange Bowl in Miami, which is 665 miles. There were a couple that were closer. There was uh, Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, and Legion Field in Birmingham, Alabama, which were in like the two-hour driving range. Mm -hmm. But Tokyo to Zipporah is just a little over 700 miles. Wow. So going from Atlanta to Miami just about the same distance okay all right so not such a strange thing to have gone far afield but i was thinking rfk stadium was <laughs> that's far away <laughs> mentally you know going from atlanta to dc feels very far Be- well when you say mentally because there is a totally different cultural shift as well I mean, right. in and DC, Atlanta to Miami, this, this the same thing. It's yes. like you are in a a whole other world. Right, right. So, so the distance, not that bad. And Tokyo to Zipporah has a bullet train, which I can guarantee you, Amtrak, DC to Atlanta <laughs> is take, not a bullet train. It would take much longer. I have done it, and it is long. Thankfully, I had a sleeping car. It's at least two days, right? I took a train from New York 
to middle Florida. Okay. And it was 24 hours. Oh, okay. Which so, I yeah. think for Amtrak, not bad. Not bad. Though we did have to stop for several Animal Crossings. <laughs> Incredible. Lots of Tokyo 2020 news. We are 100 days out from the Paralympics, and that meant that the Paralympic symbol, the three agitos, was unveiled at the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building. Oh, man. Tons of stuff around that 100-day uh, out announcement. The International Paralympic Committee announced their first video game. It's called the Pegasus Dream Tour, and it will be available at the end of June, but it's an avatar role-playing game, and you'll be able to play uh, boccia, football, five-a-side, athletics, and wheelchair basketball online, and there's going to be online tournaments, and you can interact with the other avatars in the game, and it sounds really cool, and it will be available in Japanese, English, French, German, and Spanish. You can find out more at pegasus-dream.com. The other big announcement was for U.S. Paralympians, and that is Toyota U.S. is going to give a one-time $3,000 stipend to all eligible Team USA Paralympic athletes who are in training and in contention to represent the U.S. at both Tokyo and Beijing, which... Such a huge boon to those athletes. Right? I wanted to cry for them. It just... Like, you think about how expensive it is to train and Paralympians have so many more expenses that we don't think of that they have to accommodate their disabilities while they train. And this is just a huge load off for them. So, so that is, uh, excellent news. Uh, the Olympic flame has gone through Hiroshima this week. They had the relay at the Hiroshima peace Memorial and it was started by 74 year old Takayuki Sakai and his late brother, uh, Yoshinori, lit the cauldron in 1964. Yeah, we, I remember we talked about that story when we read the book yes. in 1964 and how he was born the day the bomb fell mm -hmm. on Hiroshima. So he had been chosen to light the cauldron. So what an amazing callback right. to the long tradition of the Olympics in Japan. Right. And it's it's really nice that uh, Takayuki... Uh, was able to participate. Not everybody, again, we're having more people who have dropped out. There was Shoji Tomihisa, who is a 104-year-old survivor of the bomb, was also scheduled to take part, but he withdrew as a precautionary measure against COVID. And also novelist Kanai Minato, who is a writer of crime fiction, also decided not to take part per Inside the Games. Uh, the Kyoto News reported that Tokyo is going to cut the number of officials there again. So there's going to be less than 90,000 officials going to the games and Paralympic staff is going to be cut by 25%. So again, with all the concerns that the public has about the Olympics and Paralympics being super spreaders, they are doing what they can to cut the people, their number of people down to a minimum. Etibak said that by the time the Olympics rolls around, the, the, people in the Olympic Village, there'll be about 80% vaccinated, and they're at about 75% right now. So now he's not talking about the athletes, though. He's talking about the people who are working in the village. 
you know, I'm not sure. This is an Inside the Games article, and they just kept saying the village will be 80% in the Tokyo 2020 village will be vaccinated. Oh, yeah. He's saying residents. So he's saying so, the athletes as well. So right. that's interesting. Right. So and I think, you know, there's going to be many countries who just are having problems getting vaccinated and getting their athletes vaccinated, of course, because they're in whatever place in the country. But those countries are probably also countries with small delegations. Right. So it's not a big deal to put the 10 people that are going to the head of the line. That or it's not, you know, if they don't get vaccinated, that's, that's, that's understandable. Yes, exactly. So we'll see what happens. But uh, hopefully the pace of vaccinations continues. A nice bit of news is that uh, Tokyo announced that all energy required for operations at the Olympics and Paralympics will come from 100% renewable sources. They're going to use wood biomass power to produce electricity and also solar power. You know, before the pandemic, one of the big stories from Tokyo was how sustainable it was trying to be. The mm -hmm. metals had all come from old cell phones mm -hmm. and the podiums had all come from recycled plastic. And I'm sorry that that story has gotten lost. Right. I mean, it's appropriate that it's gotten lost, but I'm sorry that's gotten lost because those were some really interesting, creative efforts that the Tokyo Organizing Committee was making to make an event like this more eco-friendly. Exactly. So we'll see. And and we all know that after the games, we're going to have for years how much the Tokyo games cost and how much over budget they are and how many stadiums and buildings they built. Because this is really the last kind of the, the Tokyo is really that last Olympics in the big building era, I would say. Before right. Agenda 2020 and this big push towards more sustainable venues. So... The nice bit about Tokyo really working towards being more eco-friendly is that that paves a way for future games to also be sustainable. Last week, we, we reported that 280 doctors applied for 200 slots to be certified. Oh, no. We were wrong. Yeah. So the Kyoto News reported that the deadline hit and a total of 395 doctors applied for these 200 slots. Again, we're still talking about healthcare needs in Japan for COVID, but these are certified sports doctors and they probably wouldn't be treating COVID patients anyway. This is awesome. General Mills. Yet again, the Canadians. Right. General Mills Canada announced its Cheer Canada program for uh, that's part of their Cheerios cereal packaging. And what it is is... The cheer is on the front of the box and the EOs is on the side of the box and you cut the cheer out and you write a message on the back and you send it in and they're going to send all of those to the Canadian athletes to cheer them on at the games, especially because fans can't be there this year. I just want to have them so that, you know, because they were talking about how even in the stadium, you can't yell, you can't sing. Oh, right. You could hold this up your cheer. You hold up your cheer sign from your Cheerios box. That would be awesome. So I'm going to do, I, I'm hoping some Canadian will send me some Cheerios so I can sit on my couch and wave my cheer sign. I love that idea. Also, Australia released its opening and closing ceremonies kit, which you would think it's, you know, oh, it's green and yellow and there's some navy in it. 
there's shorts, polo shirts, uh, men have ties, women have scarves. Women also had the option of having a like a shift dress. That's that's I think it's kind of cute with uh, it has pockets, pockets and color blocking. So it's dark green on the bottom. And then there's a little color stripe of yellow and white. And they also have a blazer that goes over it and a nice little scarf. And you think, oh, these are kind of plain. The, the blazers are tan, ecru, beige. They look kind of boring, except for the fact that on the inside is the names of all 320 Australian Olympic gold medalists. I did not see the inside. It's in the lining of the jacket. Yes. Wow. And that makes it. That detail makes it. I'd be sitting there just flashing my jacket open all the time. <laughs> but not in, I don't mean that in a creepy way. I... <laughs> I'd have the dress on underneath. <laughs> be flashing anybody? No. Oh God. Sorry for the mental image. Oh, <laughs> send the bleach to wash that out of your brain. But that's a really cool, really cool detail. So well nice done. Touch. And then finally, uh, various countries are going to have their own Olympic festivals during Tokyo to make up for the fact that overseas fans aren't allowed. So uh, this includes, so far, it's Lithuania, Czech Republic, France, Germany, Slovakia, the Netherlands, Sweden, Romania, and Slovenia are going to have festivals. And Lithuania, it's going to be in the art zone in the town of Nida. So they're going to have big screens so you can watch the Olympics. You can do live chats with the team in Tokyo, meet athletes in person, and try out Olympic sports. So that is And I would cool. expect that Colorado Springs and Lake Placid are planning to do something so. similar if the COVID rules allow. I would hope, I would think I that so. they would. I hope so because, you know, they can't take as many staff. So, you know, there's got to be people back home and, and or left behind in Colorado Springs. Absolutely. So looking at you, USOPC, make something fun happen. Or, you know, we'll just have to make something fun happen. Very true. I'm already coming up with how to decorate the house for the Olympics. We will definitely have some watch-alongs and live chats and things going on. So let us know what kind of things you would, would like to do while we're all stuck at home, not being able to go. Yes, I watching definitely. Watching the Olympics together. Definitely want to hear your ideas about that. That is going to do it for this week. Let us know what you think about Air Rifle. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Or call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Join us next week for Movie Club. Will Foxcatcher the movie be better than the book? We will find out when Film Club Fran joins us. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the Flame Alive.
sounds like the worst game of musical chairs ever.